0: That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from only one mile away so I know what it looks like when the so-called experts get it wrong. This week we'll be sharing an exclusive interview with former Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan, done while he was in Southern California for the Fukushima Daiichi Disaster Lessons for California panel discussion. We'll also have further audio from him at that event. Today is Tuesday, June 18, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Well, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission staff gave us a week to celebrate the San Onofre shutdown, and now they want to void the very ruling that played a significant role in Southern California Edison's decision to shut it down. Just one week after SCE's stunning announcement of the permanent shutdown of San Onofre, the NRC staff will launch a desperate attempt to erase the ruling from the record. This was a ruling by the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board and was the key piece in SCE's decision. The ASLB was informed by NRC lawyers that the commission staff will file a motion to vacate or set aside the ASLB ruling. Of course. Last month, The three expert judges of the ASLB issued a unanimous verdict, agreeing with Friends of the Earth and the Natural Resources Defense Council, that restarting San Onofre Reactor Unit 2 would violate terms of its existing operating license and would therefore require a formal adjudicated license amendment process, in other words, a trial that would include public hearings and expert testimony. Voiding the ruling will not change the decision to shut down Sano, but it could affect communities in other states, such as Ohio, which is seeking more transparency from the nuclear industry and stronger ruling by the NRC that genuinely protects people and the environment. In Washington state, the leak in the massive underground double shell nuclear waste tank at the Hanford site has grown significantly since the leak was first announced to the public last fall. This according to sources who have seen new inspection video and photographs. The tank, known as AY-102 or I-102, holds 860,000 gallons of radioactive waste generated during decades of plutonium production at the southeastern Washington Reservation. I-102 was known to have leaked posing a significant setback to the federal government's plan to keep the waste secure for decades while a permanent treatment plant is built and put into operation. But documents reviewed by King 5 Television and their ace reporter Susanna Frame, along with experienced members of Washington River Protections Solution, which is the company that runs the plant, shows multiple points where the company failed to take appropriate action in response to growing evidence of the leak. King 5 News in Seattle has been doing brilliant work on this. We will post a link to their entire series on Hanford. Check out the link. Their reports have been fabulous and are a model for how mainstream media actually can cover the nuclear issue. Work continues to put out the fire at the burning Bridgeton Sanitary Landfill near St. Louis, Missouri the underground fire has been smoldering for two and a half years and is slowly creeping towards the nuclear site. The Environmental Protection Agency says the radioactive material is not endangered by the fire and there are no plans to remove it. But to give you an idea as to how serious the situation really is, an environmental investigator with the Aaron Brockovich Group has gotten involved. Near Las Vegas, Anti-nuclear and environmental groups are pressing Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval to block shipments of potent uranium waste planned for burial at a government-managed site in that state. The highly radioactive waste now is stored at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, but awaits transport to the Nevada National Security Site as a mobile Chernobyl over our highways, over our rail system, possibly even by air. Over to Minnesota. There's no end to the nuclear problems in the United States this week. Inspectors said the Monticello nuclear plant was not prepared for a major flood, but they also said that owner-operator Excel's response means the site is not now a safety concern. Huh? Federal regulators said Excel's nuclear power plant near Monticello, Minnesota, could not complete dikes and other measures necessary in a water disaster. But company officials say needed materials are now on site and a plan is ready. That's like saying you bought a piano, you bought the lesson books, you have everything ready to go, and you'll learn to play once you have a concert that evening. Three other U.S. nuclear power plants belonging to other utilities also have been cited recently for unsatisfactory flood-fighting plans. After a round of inspections prompted by the 2011 tsunami and disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan, this according to an NRC official. So in response to the 2011 disaster in Japan, it only took two years for them to get around to getting the materials on site, but not yet putting them to use? It gets better. NRC spokesmodel Victoria Mithling in an interview said, This is in response to Fukushima slow-motion response. She went on to say, The NRC has obviously a heightened sensitivity and emphasis on things like response to natural disasters.
1: Very
0: slowly. XL's chief nuclear officer, Tim O'Connor, said, Because the materials are on site, the potential safety concern has been resolved. Do they intentionally hire idiots or what? My apologies to anyone who has an official designation as idiot on the mental scale. I don't mean to insult you, only the people who affect this disability. Which leads us to the next story about Pandora's Promise. Pandora's promise was, all the troubles in the world are in this box, and you opened it. Oops! Well, the nuclear propaganda film has opened, and it has been called an infomercial for the nuclear industry. It has been called dishonest to its core, but the most damning label it has is flop. Pandora's Promise opened in only 16 screens nationally and earned a whopping $22,495. That's less than $1,405 per screen. At tops, we're talking about maybe only 2,000 people nationwide paid to see this movie during the weekend. However, it ain't over, because propaganda has an afterlife. The people in charge of this will cherry-pick their reviews, make reviews and copies of the film available in the countries and communities they are trying to infiltrate with their nuclear power, and continue to use it for decades to come. The bottom line? Never trust media created by a billionaire. Oh, oh, and the director of the film says, no one will ever get sick or die from Fukushima's radioactive contamination. Then, director Robert Stone, who's a gun for a hire, who got shot in the foot by this one, we suggest you buy land in Fukushima and get your billionaire overlords to fund the film studio that you will build there. Nobody has died, and no one has ever gotten sick from radiation, and no one ever will. This guy's brain dead. Now it's time for the NRC DOC report. So much bad news, so little time. June 11th at the Farley Unit Number One in Alabama, there was an automatic reactor trip due to the loss of a startup transformer. In other words, scram shutdown. On June 12th, Hope Creek Unit One in New Jersey had a hot shutdown. Hotcha. The B circulating water pump tripped with a stuck open discharge valve. Haven't you guys ever heard of WD 40? On Saturday, June 15, at Perry Nuclear Power Plant in Ohio, a reactor coolant leak was discovered on a recirculation flow control valve vent line. This according to First Energy Corporation spokesmodel Jennifer Young. She went on to say that, of course, the coolant leak was radioactive, but, quote, no evacuations were necessary and the public was not in danger. What she did not say was, pay no attention to that radioactive man behind the curtain. Palisades Nuclear Power Plant in Michigan restarted on Sunday, June 16, after more than a month shutdown because of a leak in a refueling water tank. This tank has leaked before. That's why, in a July 2012 letter, the plant made a commitment to measure, listen to the wording, measure and trend daily leakage from the tank and shut down the plant if the leak exceeded certain limits. How about Zero. This is a place where zero tolerance really belongs. No leaks at a nuclear power plant, not even from the toilet. Going forward, the NRC reassures us that it will continue to make sure the tank remains safe. If small leaks are discovered, they expect Energy to evaluate them according to the NRC's rules and to take appropriate action. No word from the NRC on whether they believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. And in Japan's contribution to the DOC report, their Nuclear Regulatory Authority in Japan will inspect four nuclear power plants in order to restart them after July. Now, isn't that putting the cart before the horse? If you haven't done the inspection, how do you know if it's safe to restart? The chief of this NRA, Nuclear Regulatory Authority in Japan, Mr. Sunichi Tanaka, says... We want to inspect more than four nuclear power plants at the same time because the number of our staff is small number. Doc! Up in Canada, there's a plan to bury nuclear waste a kilometer away from Lake Huron. Ontario Power Generation and the Federal Nuclear Waste Management Organization are planning to build two underground storage facilities, fill them with radioactive water over approximately 40 years, and then abandon them until the waste is decommissioned 100,000 years from now. For nearly a decade... OPG, Ontario Power Generation, and the NWMO, Nuclear Waste Management Organization, have met with the mayors of Bruce County in secret and, according to a town councilor in one eligible municipality, wined and dined them. The first of these proposed facilities could begin construction after regulatory hearings in late 2013. In what some of us see as a related story, Civil liability for damages from a nuclear accident in Canada will increase from the current Canadian 75 million dollars, 73 million, a level that was set 40 years ago and not changed since, to Canadian 1 billion, which is 978 million dollars in American dollars. And you know guys, it's still not enough. Fukushima is at half a trillion and they're not even close to being done. Over to the UK with great news for anybody who's stuck in the channel. German journalists have discovered barrels of radioactive waste on the floor of the English Channel. Just a handful of thousands dumped there decades ago. It was previously thought the material had dissipated. Now politicians are calling for the removal of the potentially harmful containers. There are some 28,500 containers of radioactive waste that were dropped into the English Channel between 1950 and 1963. Experts have assumed, making an ass out of you and me, experts have assumed that the containers had long since rusted open, spreading the radioactivity throughout the ocean and thus rendering it innocuous. Remember, these are quote-unquote experts who are speaking this drivel. That is not the way it works, guys. Radiation remains suspended in seawater and is always dangerous until it becomes inert which, depending on the radioisotope, can be up to 480,000 years or more in the future. Two of these intact nuclear waste barrels were found at a depth of 406 feet, just kilometers from the French coast. Not surprisingly, members of Germany's Environmentalist Green Party have called for the barrels to be removed from the channel. One of them pointed out to a broadcaster that dumping radioactive waste in the ocean has been forbidden for 20 years. Also in the U.K., the Sellafield nuclear site's operators mistakenly sent bags of low-level waste to a nearby landfill in Cumbria. So nuclear company Sellafield Limited has been fined 700,000 British pounds and ordered to pay more than 72,000 pounds in direct costs. The bags have been retrieved from the landfill and returned to Sellafield for correct disposal. This according to the British Environmental Agency and the Office for Nuclear Regulation, which sounds like they really do do at least some things to protect people in the environment. In Sweden, a nuclear reactor near Gothenburg, the Ringals reactor, on June 15th had a fire break out just hours after the reactor was restarted. You will recall from last week's nuclear hot seat that Swedish utility Vattenfall has started discussions with local landowners and tenants with a view to purchasing land neighboring the Ringgals power plant that could be used for construction of yet another nuclear power plant. In light of this latest fire, they might want to rethink their willingness to sell. In Japan, last week, TEPCO showed off its nearly completed steel structure around Fukushima Unit 4. This structure is designed to help workers extract more than... This story says 1,500 fuel rods, but they are actually fuel assemblies, each containing up to 96 fuel rods each. Anyway, this structure is designed to help workers extract these fuel rods from the damaged reactor building. After that project is completed, estimated to be when hell freezes over, TEPCO will return its attention to removing the melted fuel from the reactors of Units 1, 2, and 3. The company still isn't sure exactly where the spent fuel, now referred to as Corium, has fallen inside the reactors because radiation levels remain dangerously high inside the buildings, so they cannot check. You know, the next dog that I get, I think I'm going to call Corium, so that I can be just like TEPCO when I have to call out... (whistles) Here, corium. Here, corium. Where the dickens did that corium get to now? More news from the world's ultimate hotspot. Workers at the Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Power Plant have found that the newly installed Advanced Liquid Processing System, or ALPS, which was designed by Toshiba, and is supposed to be filtering 62 different radioactive substances out of the contaminated water being generated daily at the crippled nuclear power plant, is leaking contaminated water from a welded part of a storage tank. Officials have been unable to determine the exact amount of liquid and radioactive materials which leaked, so the test run of the system has been halted to investigate the cause of the leaks, and that radioactivity is still in the water. And here is the nuclear hot seat. Nub nuts of the Week! TEPCO is selling food from Fukushima at their Tokyo headquarters. The Fukushima Recovery Bazaar, which truly is a bizarre bazaar, is meant to sell food from Fukushima Prefecture and was held on June 11 at TEPCO headquarters in Tokyo. Mm-mm-mm. Made in Fukushima, tomatoes, cherries, sake, kitakata, ramen noodles, all were displayed. And according to this report, people formed long lines to buy them, especially since this food is so hot, it can probably cook itself. That's our Numbnuts of the Week this week. (laughs) Meanwhile, more serious news from Fukushima. At a Japanese school that is still in routine use, Researchers discovered a fungus emitting radiation 70 times higher than nearby asphalt. The asphalt driveway was contaminated. The grass next to it was four times as radioactive as the asphalt, but patches of fungus on the bleachers at the school's baseball field were emitting radiation at 70 times the contaminated asphalt. Researchers called the fungus-turned-radiation sponge, quote, A remarkable example of biological amplification. But lead researcher Kevin Wang put it more bluntly. He said, A boy sitting on that patch to watch a baseball game could do real damage to his gonads. And from our friend Iori Mochizuki and Fukushima Diary, he passes on a report that a teenage woman in the temporary housing of Fukushima said, Strontium 90 and cesium 137 were detected in the breast milk of her sister. This woman said they call us fearmonger, even hospital tells us we worry too much. We shouldn't have trusted the government and media to say it's all safe after three eleven We do have a nuclear hero in Japan while Prime Minister Shinzo Abe may be pushing to sell Japan's atomic technology abroad. His wife, Aki, disagrees in a June sixth speech in Tokyo. She said. I'm opposed to nuclear power. My heart aches to see him selling nuclear power overseas. I'm the opposition party at home. Can you imagine their dinner table conversations? Their pillow talk? Time for Lissa estrata. And this final story from Japan is a great lead-in to our interviews today. Naoto Kan, who is in charge of the nation during the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear calamity that began on March 11, 2011, has a blog. And on Monday, June 17, he said that Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is engaging in, quote, inhumane activity as an aggressive, quote, salesman for Japan's nuclear village by peddling the power technology overseas. In his blog, Khan said he has been stressing the importance of ridding Japan of its nuclear dependence, appealing to Tokyo residents to keep in mind that the 2011 core meltdowns in Fukushima almost resulted in the capital having to be evacuated. We're featuring former Prime Minister Khan in our interview section this week. One of the revelations of the Fukushima Daiichi Disaster Lessons for California panel discussion that was held on June 4th in San Diego was the complete turnaround of former prime minister naoto khan when first elected to office he was pro-nuclear all the way but having dealt with the horrific aftermath of the fukushima disaster the manipulations of the nuclear industry and his own conscience he has made a very public about face and is becoming a leader in the battle to shut down nuclear i have two audios from mr khan this week The first is the second half of his presentation at the panel discussion. We did share the first half of that session last week. The second interview is exclusive to Nuclear Hot Seat. In both, Kathy Iwane again volunteers to provide interpretation and become the voice of Naoto Kan. Except for a few snippets, I've edited out the Japanese, so all you will hear is Kathy's voice.
2: I'd like to uh, talk now about the causes for the actual accident of Fukushima. Most of the cause of Fukushima Daiichi accident lies in what happened before March 11, 2011. The actual facility is built on a 35 meter cliff above sea level. And 10 meters above this, we've taken soil and replaced it for an additional 10 meters above that, and that's where it's built, the facility. In other words, the idea that a tsunami would not come above this extra 10 meter barrier, the soil that it's built on, was the thinking of the time before the accident. However, in the very same area, there were many, many tsunamis, and the history, if we look back to the real history, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there is a recording that tsunamis of the, of the huge impact, of the huge size of 311 did in fact occur. Okay, and why? If we have this information, why did we build it 10 meters above sea level? It's all about economics and being close to the ocean, it's important to cool these spent fuel rods. Therefore, having the 10 meters, just the 10 meters away, it's closer to the ocean, easier to get that water to cool the spent fuel, and all those decisions were based on cost and business. So, in a similar light, in the United States, we had the 9 11 disaster, and as a result of this, there were many, many different programs imp- implemented, agencies implemented, dealing with terrorism. This same information was. Uh, of course, came into the Nuclear Safety Commission on the Japanese side as a result of 9-11, and they began to think of what to do. However, the politicians took this information with a grain of salt, saying, we don't have that sort of terrorism. We don't really need to prepare for any sort of a disaster like this. And in my opinion, if we would have put in, if we would have implemented safety precautions, preparing for such terrorism or tsunami, that there is a possibility that this could happen, we wouldn't be in the, in the position we are in today. I'd like to talk about the foundations of my thinking, the very base of how, how I'm thinking about this disaster. In, in manipulating nuclear, how, how can we uh, coexist with this nuclear energy? How I began to think about this. The substance of plutonium, we can refer to um, Dr. Yasko and and the other professionals here on this. However, we've only been around plutonium, humans dealing with this, for 70 or 80 years. Right now, mankind is dealing with the resources we have, and we've been able to adapt to the natural resources. And also, there is the possibility of the radioactivity... Um, becoming more and more. And his question is, are we equipped for this adaptability? And with, without oxygen, we need to look at the history of um, organisms on this Earth. Were there, were there organisms that were equipped to uh, live without oxygen? Looking at all these factors, how are humans dealing with this? In the 45 million year history of the Earth, the only, the only remaining living organisms were the organisms that were able to adapt to the changing environment, the global warming, all of the changes in our oxygen, all of the changes in our, in the elements that keep us functioning and metabolizing. And what I believe is because of plutonium and its recent, the, the advent of bringing plutonium into the environment of the earth is basically... Uh, I believe that we just can't uh, coexist, and of course, it's not just plutonium, but radioactive cesium. In the in the case of Fukushima, that completely puts our uh, our adaptability for radiation contamination and exposure in a completely new uh, realm and dimension. And so we return to the basic premise that living on this earth. Is mankind. Mankind is manipulating our environment. Can we, we have created the situation, we, have, we are standing at a precipice where we've created the situation, will we be able to survive? When I was a young man, I heard a lot of important, important thoughts from Prometheus, 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 from my father. And so what we learned from God, Prometheus, was that. The people that don't understand about fire are those that are teaching about fire. The fire is the symbol for wisdom. And so Prometheus taught this fire, this wisdom to Zeus, the king of the gods. And Zeus said to Prometheus, yes, it can bring us It can bring us happiness, and it can bring us understanding. However, you may end up, it's going to be a rocky road, you may end up with some problems. And therefore, Prometheus was banned, sent away, far, far away to the caves to be suffering uh, into eternity. What we've done in in the history of mankind Mm -hmm. is we've created and adapted on the premise of convenience. At the same time, we've created terrible weapons, and in doing so, we've created terrible um, destruction. Why did I become a politician? I wanted to understand, I wanted to control nuclear. I wanted to figure out a way to control nuclear power. And unfortunately, I learned through the Fukushima accident, it's impossible to control nuclear power. Between U.S. and between Japan, in among that relationship, presently, the creation of new nuclear power facilities is in general, stopped. There is not a surge for creating more. Unfortunately, there are other countries, aside from the US and aside from Japan, that believe that having nuclear is the answer. For example, India, Turkey, Vietnam. And right now, Japan, with the help and support of America, are working with various nuclear um, makers in order to export that technology. And even, even I, to be honest i was among those promoting because i believe nuclear was the safest uh, safest form of energy and i was among those promoting the export of this technology i'm reading a lot of information hearing a lot of information on all of all of the activists and all of the citizens of southern california that are working hard to prevent restart at san Onofre. And at the same time, he knows very well in America we have corporations and we have government agencies that are fighting that are fighting to um, implement Restart. It's exactly the same in Japan. And it's the same situation all over the world. What, I, what I'm thinking is the most important part to deal with this is to create a network, to create the conversations around the world to discuss this problem discuss your doubts about nuclear power the dangers the inherent risks of nuclear power but not only that the financial costs which are ongoing and future it is this network that we need to create ima ima right now he has a request from the people the activists in Taiwan who are about who are fighting the construction of their third nuclear reactor. He has been invited there to please speak about the uh, terrible uh, Fukushima accident. And so it is groups like this, this kind of meeting, this kind of conversation, that we should all expect and provide around the world. It is this sort of beginning that is the beginning to the network of speaking.
0: After the panel discussion ended, all the participants then boarded a luxury bus headed for Los Angeles and a further round of interviews with Los Angeles based media. I was honored to be invited on board, the only member of the media who was, and I was able to gain a brief interview with the exhausted Naoto Kan while we drove up to Los Angeles. Again, Kathy Iwane does yeoman's duty as the interpreter and voice of the former Japanese prime minister. The interview took a surprisingly personal turn for me midstream. What were the circumstances that actually got you here to Southern California for this event?
1: So
2: So in the very beginning, he got an email from Junko Abe. Junko Abe informed him of a very active group in Southern California, very active in the fight against San Onofre, but very concerned about nuclear issues.
0: Now, explain who Junko Abe is.
2: Junko Abe is a fabulous woman and translator that has been working on anti-nuclear issues, but she's also affiliated with Khan's Democratic Party. And she's also, I've met her in Washington, D.C., just by chance. She's also a very good friend of Torgen Johnson's. So continue with the translation now. Yes, and so, therefore, uh, he, he had an offer to come and speak, and he wants his purpose in, in, as he mentioned in the conference today, his purpose is to further the networks, the, the network of truth, the network of talking and spreading this conversation to uh, among the people that are concerned about these issues and should be. And so he was glad to accept the offer. After the accident, and even after his resignation, after the Fukushima accident, even after his resignation, his uh, administration and his concept was to go to each municipality all over the uh, domestic, inside of Japan, and talk about the issues that he talked about here today. It's time to talk about renewables. But mainly he doesn't talk about anti-nuclear. He is focusing on the positive, the renewables, and, and bringing people into that network, into the truths, uh, letting them know the information, the causes, the effects of Fukushima. And so when he got this offer to actually do what he's been doing in Japan, he came and, and do it in California. He thought, oh, well, this is just extending my network and creating another another bridge.
0: In Japan, politically, how have these talks that you are giving in the various municipalities being received? Of the
2: people that actually come to hear him speak, almost all of them are completely passionate, completely receptive, and completely in agreement. But, as it always is, the people that do not accept the invitation to come, are on the other side, in the shadows, uh, speaking uh, to various media channels and also, uh, how would you say, promulgating the opposite opinion because he is viewed as a threat. And it's very important to note that the, we we call it the nuclear village, or in some circles we say the nuclear gang, the nuke gang. Those people have a lock grid control on the media. And so they're always lurking And they're always ever ready to control the media For their purposes And so that is always a point of contention for him Because it's like you're fighting this invisible battle uh, You can't; The media will not give him a voice Because they're aligned with the nuke gang Or the nuclear village So that sort of uh, That sort of Opposition is a very, very uh, precarious thing to deal with in Japan.
0: Have you explored social media, and most specifically, having an individual podcast of you speaking directly to people over the internet so that they can access you without having to go to the media? He's writing a
2: blog. He has his homepage, he has blog, he has Twitter, and he has Facebook. And he uses that to get his message across about anti-nukes and let's, let's prevent restart in Japan. However, I forgot to tell him your part. So his, he's actually working on your idea about the podcast. Um, not the voice, but a, uh, a recorded message uh, over the Internet uh, that gets, gets it out. So you have a visual and you have the voice backing it. That's what they're thinking, but they haven't started it. What you are doing is, um, until now, what he's done is just taken the written word on his blog and and sent it out. Just like whatever, Twitter, the messages. What he wants to do is not just have a, an audio, but to actually put out the video of actions just like today. Put those on a podcast, exactly what you're Thinking of doing and and start to have the video images uh, going out more, and so he's helping him with this. He actually has I didn't know this, but he just said he has a he has his company in Sunnyvale. He has a company in Texas, Austin, Texas, and he's working on this very thing, which is a part of his trip. <laughs>
0: From what you were saying, it sounds like you either have already founded an anti-nuclear political party or you are thinking about doing so. And I would like to know, is that the case? Mm. How far has it gotten? And will you be running for prime minister again on this platform? Mm.
2: Basically, he's already uh, announced that he would like to uh, firm up and make more um, a formal party for the the anti-nuclear party. Uh, And he also has a coalition of artists and intellects. Uh, One of them is... It's very important that you understand that the present Democratic Party is a party that he was a founding member of. And so the first thing that he needs to do is redo the platform for the Democratic Party. That's one of his very important things that he's working on. Number two. And then the second, but most important part of this col- of, the, of this effort is creating the anti-nuclear platform, in order to firm that up and bring it into the present Democratic Party, and this political effort is the big issue. To bring, rather than take a party and make a brand new party, he has to bring this message and consolidate it with his own Democratic Party. And so he, that is why he's working to take seats uh, in the parliamentary elections in July. It's a slow process and a hard process. And, and the, main, the main, explaining that hard hurdle to change the Democratic Party, The way the Democratic Party stands now, they will not adopt an anti-nuclear policy as part of their platform. They just won't do it. And so his political work on the side is to galvanize support from progressive thinkers literary figures, poet poet laureates. Uh, We've got a prolific uh, artist who lives in New York City. He's Japanese and he's spoken out. His name is Ryuichi Sakamoto. Um, So he's working with these people that have supported uh, the anti-nuclear movement from day one of 311 to bring them in and to galvanize support to change the platform of the Democratic Party. Oh, And one of the most important parts about that is making an English homepage for him. We need that. Not just, not, of course we need the English podcast, but we also need, because there's so much support for that outside of Japan, so that's what he's saying. The the public utility of Fukushima, the accident, the Fukushima accident, it's what the Prime Minister of Japan thought about. It's all of what he's thinking about. It's his thoughts regarding the accident. And he needs this in English.
0: I don't know if you're familiar with e-books and print-on-demand at minimum but certainly that can be a start to getting the word out even before a major publisher has contact with you
2: about the book. Yeah. When he's he's doing that, would you please help me?
0: This is what I do professionally here in the United States. Unfortunately, we were interrupted before I could complete my planned questions. But Mr. Kahn made further comments of interest during the Q&A which followed the event. Those will be presented on Nuclear Hot Seat in the new future, along with Q&A remarks by former NRC Chair Gregory Yasko, former NRC Commissioner Peter Bradford, who was in power during Three Mile Island, and Arne Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. The Fukushima Daiichi Disaster Lessons for California panel took place only three days before Southern California Edison announced the permanent closure of San Onofre. That was the subject of the rather ecstatic interviews with activists featured on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat. But a few of those interviews slipped through the cracks because the program ran long and I had to cut them. Not wanting to let a good celebration go to waste and wanting to remind us of what it sounds like to win I'm incorporating them right cheer right now. First is Ace Hoffman. Ace is a self-taught expert on the engineering and science behind nuclear power and a principal member of the DAB safety team that was so active and so influential in the shutdown San Onofre struggle. He's an activist who has put in more than 20 years fighting San Onofre, as well as the author of The Code Killers, Why DNA and Nuclear Radiation Are a Dangerous Mix. This hugely informative book is available as a free downloadable PDF from his website, acehoffman.org. Here's Ace just two days after the San Onofre decision was announced.
3: I was up early that day, about 5:30, and at 6:41, I think it was Darren McClure gave me a phone call and said he had heard it on the radio,
0: and he told. Darren's me, another is another activist here in Southern California.
3: Yeah, and it's funny because he and I are probably two of the most wired. And connected activists, uh, you know, around certainly in, in, in this issue. And yet, when it came to this moment, he made a phone call. Plain old telephone system. Well, I thanked him and got off the phone and started to look around to confirm it. But I was sure that it was true because you know he he had said that he heard it on the radio. And it seems a pretty outlandish thing to be announcing if it wasn't true. So I completely believed it, but went ahead and started doing my due diligence anyway.
0: How did you celebrate?
3: Well, the domes are still up. I don't, wouldn't exactly say that I have celebrated. I guess I just uh, felt a lot of gratitude to all the other activists who had done so much and started thinking about how much had been done to get to this moment and what were the deciding factors and what had happened.
0: How long have you been working on the closure of San Onofre?
3: Twenty years for uh, since I moved to the area. I got really serious about it about uh, 13 or 14 years ago in 2000, 2001. So this is very gratifying. I want to say it's a dream come true, but we have this enormous pile of waste that we're going to have to deal with. And the real dream come true would be to lead the country in closing all of our nukes and then watch it spread across the country as we explain to people how even having closed the nukes, we still have this enormous waste problem, which thankfully is at last not getting any bigger here in Southern California.
0: If you had any advice or any message for anti-nuclear activists around the country and truly around the world, because that's where the podcast is listened to, what would you have to say to them?
3: They should love pit bulls, because that's what you have to act like to win a fight like this. We doggedly Bid on to this steam generator problem, and people from Friends of the Earth, Arnie Gunderson, uh, and other experts that they hired, and people that had worked at the plant who are also experts, uh, independently researched and researched and researched the steam generator problem, and they, there was there are problems. There are engineering problems that are keeping the plant closed. You could say that the only reason this happened is because of the engineering problems and the activists had nothing to do with it. There's a valid argument to be made there. I think that's stretching it by an enormous amount. Uh, But uh, um, it is true that restarting this plant would have been absolute folly. And the way that other activists can use that to close their plants is there's something just as foolish going on at every plant absolutely all the time. If you can get the whistleblowers to come out, if you can – expose these events, and if you can discover what it is that is so dangerous and understand it and make light of it, and make the NRC look at it, and that's what Friends of the Earth was basically doing, You know, more than the rest of us were trying to do it too, but they really went in with legal action and with you know conviction and with an understanding of how the system works. The more you know. I mean, this one was done within the system. That's perhaps the most beautiful part of it. I want to call out Ray Lutz's work because he's had an enormous impact in a very subtle kind of a way. But he also has done a lot of the technical research that needed to be done to prove that this plant is dangerous. And he's also been so accommodating of everybody. He made a comment recently that it's kind of good that although there are a lot of groups acting against the power plant nowadays, by them not being all connected very tightly... It means that they're independently coming up with the same kinds of facts, and and they're reaching out to completely different people. They're not being infiltrated. You can't infiltrate as many groups as there are now. It's impossible. The government has way too many things to do. Most of the activists against San Onofre, I'm sure, are very honest people. They honestly believe what they're saying, and they're working for the same goal. They've been working for the same goal of shutdown. So it's really been an incredible uh, moment, and, yes, I think it's historic. It feels good. I don't know how to celebrate, but it does feel
0: good. Ace Hoffman. That same day, I spoke with Michael Marriott, the executive director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NIRS, and a friend of all of us who oppose nuclear. Here's his perspective on our win.
4: I found out by email early Friday morning, and actually it was an email that I almost ignored. Why did you almost ignore it? Oh, because we get so much email about San Onofre over the last several months that I just thought it was another one and I would get to it later. And then I noticed wait, it says closing? Uh, so I opened it up and it was uh, a link to the utilities press release that had just come out at the time. Uh, and I said, whoa. And so the first thing I did was uh, put it up on Twitter and Facebook.
0: What do you see as the significance of this sudden closure of San Onofre?
4: Well, it's not a sudden closure it's uh been two years in the making almost if you want to start the clock ticking from the nuclear free you know the first nuclear free california meeting and putting together this incredible grassroots network that has stayed together and stayed very strong and I think that is one of the important things is that You had this grassroots network that was very committed to pursuing this until the end, and it stayed together. And then you had friends of the earth come in with some resources and enthusiasm and stuck with it. And, of course, you had the utilities' own incompetence. You put those three things together, uh, and this is the outcome you can get. Uh, And I think it gives a lot of hope to people in other parts of the country, you know, Indian Point near New York, Vermont, Yankee, you know, where some of these other decrepit old reactors are. It gives them a lot of hope that with the same kind of persistence and the same kind of dedication to this, they can reach the same kind of end. And I think that's uh, entirely possible.
0: If you had words of encouragement for other activists who are fighting this battle in their own local communities, what would that be?
4: Stay with it. San Onofre had some unique aspects to it, the severity of its steam generator problems and the you know piss-poor piss response by the utility in dealing with those. But every reactor has its own unique problems. And the key is to seize on those problems. And continue to go with them. I mean, we know that these reactors are not safe. We know that they're not economic, and it's a matter of being able to point that out effectively in every possible forum. And that means, you know, the media. It means political. And I think you know, one of the great things that the grassroots people in Southern California did was you know go to all these city councils and talk to them and say hey you know this is this is what's happening and you folks need to take a stand on this and a an awful lot of those city councils and local government bodies did take stands did take firm stands on this uh, they wouldn't have done that without that grassroots encouragement and assistance that's a tactic well worth emulating you know there it's been some thought that the prospect of having to Go through an atomic safety and licensing board is what put Southern California Edison over the edge. I mean, I'm not convinced of that. I think internally they just finally added it up and realized it was just never going to be economic for them uh, unless they could just get it up and running now, and nobody was going to let them do it now. It's sort of the combination of all those things the growing political pressure the growing public pressure, and a, a legal component that makes it difficult for them to do exactly what they want to do, which is, you, know, you know, of course, run roughshod over the people of the area. Hopefully this time next year we'll be talking about the same success at Indian Point.
0: Oh, Indian Point, Davis, Bessie, and sure. maybe we
4: can find a third one to put so on that list. For my Yankee, you know, there's a bunch of them out there.
0: Let's go get them. That was Michael Marriott, executive director of NEARS. Finally, never want to let a good numnuts of the week go to waste. Here's last week's. And here is the nuclear numnuts. Southern California Edison, those silly little numnuts, have completely missed the point of social media. They put up a brand new Facebook page Save San Onofre Nuclear Plant. Talk about your non viral sites. When did it premiere? Four, count them, four days before the announced shutdown. But boy, was it ever fun for those four days. It was a great sight to go to to cheer myself up when the nukes were getting me down. I posted comments contradicting everything that they said, put up links to groups like Neers and Beyond Nuclear, shared about it on Facebook with others so that the Nuclear Hot Seat community and the Coalition Against Nukes could post their links and their rebuttals. It was a blast. It was a bloodbath. And we weren't the ones bleeding. It even led their admin to waggle his pudgy white finger at me with a warning to be civil. Well, on Friday, I posted a single comment It's over. You lose. Move along. Today I returned to that site, and everyone is blocked! Not only that, they took down all of our comments! Can you imagine? All that's left is their sad-ass nuclear propaganda points, as if running an aircraft carrier has anything to do with San Onofre. So, save San Onofre Nuclear Plant Facebook page. You are the nuclear hot seat Numbnuts Nuts of the Week. Here's today's final thought. Today marks the start of Nuclear Hot Seat's third year of weekly podcasts. I started out with the simple intention to share everything about nuclear that was making me nuts and see if I could find anybody out there who resonated with it. My first podcast was actually just a conference call with only two participants, one of whom I did not know. Thank you, Wanda and Tim. So here we are two years later, and I'm interviewing the former Prime Minister of Japan and activists literally around the world, from Japan, India, and some upcoming ones that will make comparable use of Skype. All that without the very thing I tell my coaching clients. Set an intention, a timeline, then take daily actions to get you to it in an intentional way. So to celebrate this anniversary, here are my intentions for the coming year for Nuclear Hot Seat. First, that Nuclear Hot Seat continue to be syndicated, linked to, and forwarded, building its presence as a primary support, encouragement, and news channel for anti-nuclear activists around the world. Two, that my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, a nuclear memoir from Three Mile Island to Beyond Fukushima via Broadway, Israel, and Recovery, never let a good keyword get away from you. That this book gets published as an ebook and then a physical book, tops the bestseller lists on Amazon and the New York Times, and then gets optioned by Hollywood for a film that actually gets made in a timely manner and released in movie theaters. Third, that I become Jon Stewart's nuclear pundit and have a regularly scheduled time slot. And number four, that the work I do with Nuclear Hot Seat and beyond become part of our international global success in shutting down nuclear in all its many forms and then supporting those whose research will lead to the ultimate neutralization of the nuclear poisons already unleashed. So if you can help with any of these goals, especially John Stewart, because I'm a great fit with his style and orientation, send me a message on Facebook or an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Then, Keep listening, and next year, mid-June, we'll see how far I've gotten. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 18, 2013. Material for this week's podcast has been compiled from ENENews.com, KPBS, King 5 News in Seattle, and fabulous reporter Susanna Frame, CBS St. Louis, Elko Daily, Minneapolis Star Tribune, Seattle Weekly, Roger Harried, Forbes, The Ohio News Herald, I can't even pronounce that blog, but it's Japanese. Vice.com, Spiegel.de, The Guardian, The Local, The Mama Bears Brigade and Catherine Wind Euler, Fukushima Diary and Iori Mochizuki, Fairwinds Energy Education and Arnie Gunderson, The Japan Times, The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, The World Nuclear News, TEPCO, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Woohoo! Yay us! Our archive is available on iTunes or at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. There is actually the start of a searchable database being formed for Nuclear Hot Seat. Our thanks to friend Joseph K. Adams for helping us with this. And while it is not yet complete, hopefully it will be done in less time than it will take SCE to decommission San Onofre. We will have this for the entire set of 105 and counting podcasts. I'll have a link to that available on the website, on the blog page, because I can't tell you the direct URL right now, but I promise you, you will have it. So, what did you learn from today's podcast class? How often did it make you laugh? What did you hear that surprised you? Where else can you find all this information in one easy-to-swallow place? Well, we all know the answer to that one. Nowhere. So, if you appreciate this work, help me keep it going. Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to keep bringing you the news, interviews, holistic healing tips, nuts of the week, NRC Doc Report, and so much more. So right now, before you forget, go to the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down and hit the donate button, then follow the prompts and give a little, get a little, do your part to help me keep this podcast going. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com or send me a message on Facebook. We are copyright 2013, Lee B. Halevy and Hardestry Communications, all rights reserved, but permission to reuse granted as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. We're going to go out on my nature. From Armageddon, The Living End Music and performance by Grady Lyrics by, oh yeah, me This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications The heart of the art of communicating Reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call Now, do not go back to sleep Stop, look around
1: you Think Touch, smell Life is all around you Call it well Reconsider what I'm worth If you plan to stay on Earth I'm my nature Don't mess with me We need all this planet Land, sea, air Take it from your mommy. You'd better care. Think it through and have no doubt. See how time is running out. I'm on nature. Don't mess with me. There's no denying that slowly I'm dying. Incredible. Look what you're doing. It's mother you're screwing. How Oedipal Stop, look around you Hear my voice Keep it up and one day I'll have no choice If your careless ways don't halt It won't be San Andreas' fault Stop, and look around you Think, touch, smell, everywhere a warning. Can't you tell you don't have a way to leave? I will give you no reprieve. I'm my nature, don't mess with me.